Yeah, so what I'm doing is I'm saying the time and date. So this is 10 11. 8.02 p.m. So it's 12.13. 7.39 p.m. At 12.08. It's 4.52. This is 11.57. Today is... It's... Is it March... May 20th? It's April 16th. May 30th. March 28th. May 19th. May 19th. March 28th. Today, today, today is... Sunday. Monday. Tuesday. Wednesday. Friday. Okay, so Ava, this is episode four. There's been no decision to uh, to bring kings to a premature end. Welcome back to Demise of the Crown. It's a story about grief and loss, how uncertainty tears us apart. This is a story of Christian academics who by various ways and sundry methods, sought to deal with an ambiguous future, with the range of consequences that followed. I'm so glad you joined us for this week's episode. Uh, the one we released last week was quite a departure from our big story, the death of the King's College. This week, on our train ride of journalism, we're going to cover the intervening months between the beginning of the semester, the time at which we introduced you to our story in episode one, and the end of the semester, the dog days of the mid-spring semester. These months... So much happened. Looking back over a timeline of events, the amount of entries more than doubles that which happened in episode one. And so, once again, we have to remind you of the inadequacy of our reporting. We lived this. These few months that we're about to describe this episode were our lives, and still are. And we can't possibly fully cram that experience down into less than an hour for your consumption. We'll do our best, of course, but it's so much more deep than all this. If you want to explore the articles we mentioned to get a more full idea of this time, you can check out the links in the transcript and in the show description as well. Our show this week is making four stops. First, we're going to hear about how the obligatory $2.6 million got patched, or did it? After that, some hard-on-the-line stuff about this bleak time. Then, the King's student body discovers yet another hurdle, or an always present hurdle, to being a college. And finally, a word, actually quite a few words, about recruitment when the future is uncertain. And with that, staying clear of the closing doors, please. This is episode four, Palpable. Wait, 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 hold on. One more thing. Sorry, this is new. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions for us, you can contact us at demiseofthecrownpodcast at gmail.com. We cannot promise that we will respond, just so you know. Uh, but if you'd like to let us know what you think, that's demise of the crown podcast at gmail.com. And you can also find it in the show description. All right, all right, run it back. And with that, staying clear of the closing doors, please. This is episode four Palpable. From the Empire State Tribune, in collaboration with Broadway and Exchange Podcast, I'm Julia Jensen. I'm Colby McCaskill, and this is Demise of the Crown. One of the ways that this financial crisis went from oh well to oh shit real fast was the fact that with limited funds, the King's College began to go delinquent on some of its financial obligations, often to the detriment of student mental health. Welcome surprise for college students living in Brooklyn, an eviction notice from their apartment building. They faced the threat of being thrown out for failure to pay the rent. But News Force Jackie Beckford learned tonight it's not the students who failed to pay. This is a local NBC News report and it aired about a month after we received the first rent due notice. 
Students there have been told by management to pack up and leave after they say the school didn't pay their rent and is now claiming tenants' rights. We got the first eviction, or the first letter, then the second letter, and then we got the eviction notice. Eviction notices like this one showed up on students' doors, saying they owed rent for January and February and needed to pay within 14 days or leave. You know, we pay rent to, well, we pay housing money to the college, and then the college is supposed to pay our rent. Students say the college admitted to not making the payments. A message on the website describes the college is in dire financial straits, asking donors for $2.6 million to keep operating through the end of the semester. Okay, much of what that reporter just said was exaggerated. So what happened was February 8th, I came back to my apartment, and as soon as I walk in, I see this unassuming little piece of paper on the ground in the entryway. I pick it up, I look it over, it doesn't have my name on it, just my apartment number, and it says, quote, This letter shall serve as notification that the monthly rent due under the terms of your lease agreement has not been paid and that five days have elapsed since the date it was due. The amount? Over $9,300. $9,300. Eventually, I'd come to learn that the amount varied. Some apartments, the ones with more balcony space and a better layout, were upwards of $10,000. And look, we're not paying nine dollars to $10,000 for our apartment. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I mean, the price for our apartment is not nine dollars to $10,000 a month. But also, yes, the King's College was not paying our rent. For those not in New York City, nine to $10,000 is an obscene amount of money for the small two-bedroom apartments we had. Instead, as it turns out, King's had missed paying rent twice by the time we got the notes. No, these were not eviction notices. They were late rent notices. Don't get us wrong, that's not a whole lot better. The CFO, Jennifer Anderson, addressed the notices in the next community update. But what I want to address with you guys is the all be uh, the all management notice from last week. So many of you received an email from us. Um, the overdue rent that, that you received the notices for is part of that $2.6 million that we mentioned in the last community update. So that $2.6 million includes a lot of expenses that we're trying to cover over the next few months, which includes the apartment rent. The notices that were given, not an eviction notice, that's a past due notice. So it's just kind of notifying, like, hey, there's there's some rent you need to pay. Um, in our converse, we have been in conversations with the Albi management, and in our conversations, we had requested that those be directed directly to us, because we, the King's College, is the leaseholder. You as individual students are not the leaseholder. The King's College is the leaseholder. So we requested that those be directed to us. Um, however, they did move forward with their standard practice of providing notices to the individual apartments. And just so you know, we are committed to paying Albi as soon as we are able. And as we are, we are current, we are continuously and currently working on fundraising efforts to meet that $2.6 million gap. Um, and in the meantime, please don't worry, you're not being evicted. Your current housing situation is remaining the same. But these condolences and words of relief actually brought even more confusion when a few weeks later, on the 24th, we got another late rent notice. At one point, we got a guy, like an adult man, come dressed in a big camo hoodie and a low baseball cap, pound on doors, asking for the names of the students. We assumed it was either to scare us into paying rent, or collect personal information to put even more pressure on us. There was this one night where the guy first came, and I pinged the EST chat asking if anyone had any idea what was going on. Colby rushed downstairs to try to get an interview, but the debt collector wasn't talking. Actually, of the sounds he was making, the most prominent was this almost sound effect that played at random times. Here's Colby explaining that night to some students during an interview later. We did get a guy banging on our door. Oh yeah? That was kind of scary. That was the worst. <laughs> and he, asking for our names. Did he play the, the, like, the Old West sound? No? Hold on, let me see if I can find it. What do you mean? There was music? There was, there, he, what? He, he had, he had a, oh, what's it called? A sound effect. What? Um, was he? No, he was just banging on the door and like, sounded really no way. Like, you banged on the door and then he had something in his hand that made, like a, like a you sure, board? Hold on, You sure second. he was not just in your head? That's a good question. <laughs> one second. He can't confirm or deny that. He he's not sure. Old West. 
sound effect. Okay. Oh yeah, I know that sound. <laughs> was he really playing that? I am wondering if it was if his, his phone rang. Maybe it was his phone, but like every ten seconds. Oh. So you would hear you would hear a weird ringtone. That was the is perfect that sound effect. Yeah, it is. It was. I think he had fun with it, but it was it was very weird. Um, yeah. yeah, I did was, not hear that. He just seemed like annoyed. Colby's laughing at it a little bit here, but at that moment, it was not a pleasant experience. The thing was that the students in the building had paid rent to Kings, but for some reason, Kings had, I guess hopefully, opted to use their available funds to pay more pressing debts. And that meant that underage students were accosted at their homes by debt collectors for a sum that they themselves had already paid. It seemed like the adults in the room were fighting over money, but the students, we were the ones actually receiving the consequences of the conflict. And to add insult to injury, the college, the administration, the body responsible for the debt, but not the one bearing any intimidation, continually did not take responsibility. They kept addressing it in the community updates, but by saying it was the apartment building's fault. This was all the administration had to say during that meeting after we got more notices on the 24th. All right, I want to share about Albi, right? Who's in Albi? Yes. So we are well aware that you continue to get obnoxious letters from Albi management. We know that. Our lawyers are working with Albi management, and we are not entirely sure. We reach agreement that, no, we're good. We're not going to send out letters, and then they send out letters. So we're not exactly sure why, but do just know that this, again, is part of the normal procedure that takes place when rent is passed due. So I know that that must be just not a pleasant thing to get on your door, uh, but know that we are aware of it and it does not implicate you at all. So that's something that is for us to deal with. And again, if you do get a letter, please just make sure that you drop it off with the student services desk. That was it. No remorse. No, we're sorry that we let this happen. Not even remorse for that responsibility. Like, uh, we're so sorry that this is happening. Not even a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Nothing. A day later, EST published Paul Gladder's article about Peter Chung the guy we talked about last episode. It dived into the history and the legacy of the CEO, and why, maybe, the media ought to pay attention to his scrupulous dealings a bit more. And then, suddenly, we got a lot of money. Yeah, that's right. On March 3rd, Peter Chung gave us $2 million. Questions immediately circulated the school over whether this meant more debt. Was this a gift? Or yet another sum owed back? Sadly, the money was a loan. Eventually, we learned that the loan was backed by the college's venture to get government COVID employee retention benefits from the CARES Act. So, when those funds came in, supposedly Peter Chung got his investments back. But wait, I hope you're asking, if Peter Chung, or rather Primacor, is already supposed to be the one funding Kings, why would they need to wait so long to give us that loan to bridge that gap? The best we can tell, the simple fact that Kings even made the public announcement of a shortfall, was evidence of Primacor's desire for separation. In the same EST article that announced this second bridge loan, we also reported that Kings had confirmed in a faculty meeting on March 1st that Primacor was officially pulling out of the partnership. And, well, as you'll find out later in episode 6, the end of that strategic collaboration was not too far away. But in the meantime, wouldn't this near-miraculous clutch investment of $2 million save Kings, pluck the worry out of the students, and give everyone involved enough momentum to continue towards next semester? Well, not exactly. Because on top of the fact that a loan does not exactly give stability, there was another thing that added to all this ambiguity. Our next stop the college's accreditation status. Act 2. The Great Commission. So, the thing that the college desires, just as much as money, to stay open and remain a school, is accreditation. We haven't actually talked about the college's accreditation on this podcast yet, but this is a big part of the story, 
and one of the most revealing series of events during the spring 2023 semester. The King's College accrediting body is called the Middle States Commission on Higher Education, but for the sake of time, we'll be referring to them not by their acronym MSCHE, but by Middle States. They grant accreditation to a bunch of different schools in New York, Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and DC. Over 500 schools, according to their website. They took action in late February, the 27th to be exact. And by took action, we mean that Middle States notified Kings and also posted a little update on their website. The notice read as follows, and I'm just going to read it all. It's not that long and you'll learn a lot. Quote, staff acted on behalf of the commission to request a supplemental information report due March 13th, 2023, that provides additional information on Standard 6 and requirements of Affiliation 2, 11, and 14. To require that the institution complete and submit for approval by March 13, 2023, a comprehensive, implementable teach-out plan and agreements. In accordance with the Commission policy and federal regulations, the teach-out plan must provide for the equitable treatment of students to complete their education and complete any signed teach-out agreements that the institution has entered into or intends to enter into with another institution. The next evaluation visit is scheduled for 2023-2024. End quote. Okay, Um, that was actually longer than I anticipated. I'm sorry about that. That's a lot of jargon. Let's break it down. Essentially, middle states, the people that decide whether Kings is worthy of accrediting, came to the decision that they needed a little bit more information at this time because of all the ambiguity surrounding the situation. So middle states reaches out and says, hey, we're not the most sure you're doing okay. Can we see a little extra, a little supplemental information, maybe in the form of a report? From that, then we can be confident that you are still keeping up academics and all that jazz. A lot of that jargon is spelling out the specific ways in which kings may be failing to meet their standards. The words Standard 6 and Affiliation 2, 11, and 14 are shorthand for the sections of their bylaws called Standard of Accreditation and Requirements of Affiliation. Just a quick side note here. Middle States recently released the 14th edition of these bylaws, and as such, have condensed the previous 15 requirements of affiliation into four. At the time that these accreditation actions were taken, the bylaws were in the 13th edition, and as such, our links will direct there. All this to say that King's needs to prove that they are functioning as an institution, second, that they have enough money to continue functioning, and third, that they are willing to cooperate with Middle States by March 13th. This event in the demise of Kings is not the most prominent. In reality, taking action manifested to little more than an update to their website and contacting the administration of the college. But this still is worthy of mention because of how this thread of narrative eventually expanded drastically, exposing some of the less obvious parts of the college's identity. In late February, the college began its journey down that path of accreditation examination, and at that point, We had no idea how centrally exposing that path would be. We'll check back in with all things middle states when they take further action, but for now, we've derived at our third stop. Let's hit up the student body to see how they're doing. Unwelcome surprise for college students living in Brooklyn, an eviction notice from their apartment building. They face the threat of being thrown out for failure to pay the rent. But News Force Jackie Beckford learned tonight it's not the students who failed to pay. The King's College is a small Christian school with about 400 students here in lower Manhattan. It's on campus. Housing takes up about five floors in a new high rise in downtown Brooklyn. Students there have been told by management to pack up and leave after they say the school didn't pay the how are you feeling about the situation Kings is in at this moment right now? Currently at this very second, um, I am uh, void of hope. By early March, the news had hit the mainstream media that this little college in downtown Manhattan, right in the center of all the action, could perhaps be on its last legs. And with that attention came waves of worry, anxiety, and still no definitives on the future of the college. Remember, this era began about half a year after the right-sizing leak, and went on for months after the original $2.6 million deficit announcement, all without an answer to the future of the college, only impending financial doom. Palpable. 
that was the word one senior used to describe the anxiety on campus. And I agree. That's really what it felt like, in my opinion, at least. Like a thick worry oozing into every little corner of our lives. Here's one former student, Rachel, telling me more about it. Ooh, so I just actually had a lady at church who asked me, what's going on at King's? And I say, what have you heard? Because there's a lot of things that, you know, people get wrong. So I think that Professor Gladder's article by far was the most accurate op-ed. I think the Christianity Today one was fine also. I think the New York Times one was obviously misleading. Um, I think that the NBC News channel that actually I was a part of, (laughs) um, I think that they took a lot of things out of context, um, but they did get the I'll be right notices right, objectively. Um, And I think that all of these articles are trying to, like, decide what is the actual outcome of King's. And there's just so much ambiguity in it because we have so much ambiguity in it. Currently, at this very second, um, I am uh, void of hope, I think is what I would characterize it as. I have been, I was really anxious about it for about three out of the four months. But, you know, at this point, I just figured that we should, A, have a decision by now. And B, it would just be nice to know where I'm going to go to school next semester. I cannot stress to you enough how confusing a space this was to live in for us as underclassmen. Will we be here? Will we not? It dominated almost every conversation we had. Let me tell you about Shaylee. She's eventually going to be the student body president-elect. Yes, we had elections even in this confusing state. Because, and I really only think it could be because... We had no idea whether it was going to work out. They wanted to be prepared, just in case. Listen to the conflict rolling around in Shaylee's head. She, like all of us, was really struggling with this ambiguity. What made you commit to being at King's next year? Uh, Life. My own personal life circumstances. A lot of doors closed that I didn't expect to close. So my original plans, my original plans I know are not the plans I should go with. And because I don't have a definitive next step, I just committed. And even then that commitment as student body president, clearly I've made some form of commitment, but I mean, we're, we're all, it's also up in the air still. So I'm committed as best as I can be, which is clearly probably a little bit more than others considering the student body president thing, but, you know, it's it's just so peculiar. Do you think they're missing out by not staying? I mean, I think they could be, but there's just so much up in the air. It's kind of like, are we making a bad decision by sticking it out? I mean, unfortunately, time will tell. But I think everyone's just trying to make the best decision for them. Do I think they're missing out? (laughs) I mean, yes, but also, I don't know. I don't know, no. Okay. Well, I don't know, it's just like, they could be missing out on something, but we don't even know what they're gonna be missing out on. Hmm. Okay. I mean, what is next year going to look like? I don't know. Yeah. If a next year comes. Do you feel confident about a next year happening? I think I feel probably more optimistic. Might be a lie. Redact. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I hear things going both ways, so I don't have... I guess I'm not really getting... I mean, clearly I have some faith that it's all going to work out. And I do hope it does. But I don't know if I'm 100% like, oh, this is all going to work out and King's is going to be open next semester. 
This was the question on everyone's mind. Is it reasonable to have hope that kings will survive? And for a lot of students and faculty alike, hope seemed a commodity too expensive. Yeah, yeah. It's like living two lives simultaneously. The, 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 the we are closing life and then we're, we may be here. It's like, well, I don't, you know, I, I was having trouble just with one. <laughs> you know, putting the two together. And, and by the way, the one that involves the closure potentially, that's the most emotionally draining one. I, I guess everybody is just. They're so not telling us everything. What do you mean? I feel. I feel like they know. They know the school's probably going to close. They know a bunch of these things, and they're just trying to milk it out and keep, give us hope as long as possible. And I don't think that giving us hope is the best idea. It sounded like earlier you didn't have hope. Yeah. I mean. If you look at the professors who are leaving, and I mean, to me, the professors are what make kings kings. Like, the academics and the people that they are are kings, along with the students, obviously. But without them, somebody partners with us, that's a different school. That's not kings anymore. And that's best case scenario. Because even the professors who do stay are still gonna be looking for jobs because they're still kind of on a sinking ship. It's hard. Yeah. It's that, it, it's hard as, a, it's hard enough as like a senior and um, someone who is really committed to the student body and who loves the student body to say, I don't know, but it's also hard as like a representative of the students to say, I don't know, when my job is to, to be the communicator between administration and the students, it, it's really hard to just say, I know as much as you do, mm. so. This conflict about whether you can or cannot let yourself ride the waves, the ups and the downs of this answerless purgatory, man, it weighed heavily on everyone. After the semester ended, I set up an interview with Dr. Johnson, who you'll hear more from in our last episode, and he told me that even he had to tap out. I mean, in my mind, about three months ago, I just or two months ago, I just said, this place is closing. I don't see any way in which that isn't going to happen because it, the, the back and forth was too much for me. And so for me, emotionally, it was just easier if I just said, it's going to close. I'm not really going to entertain any other option, options. If it doesn't, great. If I find another job and it still stays open miraculously, um, good for Kings. I don't want it to close. He related it to an experience of a close friend who had recently watched his wife go through the dramatic peaks and valleys of ongoing cancer. How's it going? He's like, it's just really weird knowing your wife could die, but you're not sure. Uh, and so in a much lesser way, I feel like something like that has been going on with the Kings. It's like, well, it could die. Maybe it won't. Maybe it could. And again, that back and forth is just no good for anybody. So that's why in my mind, I just started talking and acting as if it's closing. There's not really any other real possibilities. Um, if something else happens, great. But man, when I tell you, looking back at all these stories and interviews, when things took place in that moment, it all felt like time soup. A thick, viscous trap. March. Oh my gosh. So much happened in March. Don't believe me? Just go look back at that last sentence on the dialogue in the transcript. But the ambiguity of the future made it feel like it never came. One of the biggest questions, though was whether even if we made it through the financial crisis and somehow still had a functioning school, was there going to be an incoming freshman class? To answer that question is where we are headed next. Act. In Act 4 this week, we're going to hear from two of the people tasked with recruitment for the college's 2024 semester. A semester that was not guaranteed by administration. Wait, nobody guarantees stuff. In spite of that, King's was officially continuing to recruit and tour prospective students. But something had happened in early March. Something that put all that oversized, ethically debatable work on an undersized team. Admissions was one of the departments that Primacore was paying. These admissions workers worked mainly on campus. Just like Sophia and Eric, they worked as if they were King's employees, yet their paychecks were from Primacore. On the very day that that $2 million Peter Chung loan came in, Primacore fired the vast majority of King's admissions employees. So, what that meant was that really, the only official paid admissions workers, at least for a little bit, 
were just a few students. And one of those student workers is Parker. Here he is. Just being able to work in the admissions department and being a junior or a third year, let's say third year, um, it just was like everything was kind of falling into place and I was starting to think of life outside of college and like what my future could be and I was really excited and um, things were going well personally and um, and then we get back and then this all happened. So. Sorry about the audio quality there. I had to use two different mics because of battery problems. For all you aspiring radio reporters out there, bring extra batteries. Uh, don't worry, the rest of the interview was with the good mic. Before we sat down for the interview though, Parker took me on a tour he was doing with a prospective student. And what was really interesting to me was how Parker chose to approach the topic of the financial crisis. There had been late rent notices sent to a student apartments and debt collectors pounding on doors. Did he mention that? No. Students also received notices from Con Ed, the utility company. Unlike the late rent notices, those ones had teeth. Pay by March 21st or your service will be shut off, the letter read. Did he mention that? No. And why would he? He did make a couple allusions to the possibility of change, but nothing outright. When he was done with the tour and the student met up with the family in the lobby, Parker was approached by the student's father, who definitely wanted answers. Yeah, um, so, you know, it is public knowledge that our school is having struggles at the moment financially, um, and I think a lot of schools are right now are struggling financially, um, and I don't want to say that meaning like, oh, I'm such a political answer, like all schools are going through struggles, but I mean, it's hard, um, to see us go through struggles, but he did have some questions, and I appreciate those questions. Yeah. That means people are doing their research, and they're really looking at Kings deeply. Um, I appreciate that, because I don't want just all these random people here, I want people that want to be here, you know, because we're an amazing school with amazing students, with passion and drive, and to see that parents and students are researching and they do have questions and they have hard hitting questions, I think is important um, for especially prospective students to see who's you know the best fit. What stuck out to me was that Parker was a first semester senior. So I only have one semester left. So for him to be able to graduate, he was relying on Kings to continue to operate. Typically, as a first semester senior, the expectation would be that he, a December 2023 graduate, would wait out the summer then come back in the fall to finish his last semester of school. But because the fall semester hadn't been guaranteed, he had taken steps to try to walk in May and take accelerated summer courses to finish his degree before it came to fall at all. I wouldn't have the chance to walk, but there is a petition going on right now for uh, December 2023 graduates to be able to walk this May, which I fully support. I signed uh, my name on that document because I think it is important. I was a May 2020 high school graduate, so I also didn't have a high school graduation. And I thought it was very ironic that, you know, now I get to my college graduation and I won't be able to have This all means that while Parker was working in admissions, he was bringing in students that would be putting down deposits for the very semester he was trying to avoid. What a place he was in. Only a student worker. Yes, of course, a diligent one, and abundantly capable. But to be working admissions for a school, for a semester where you are avoiding attending yourself, that doesn't sound responsible on the administration side. It sure doesn't. I want to clarify, Parker explained that there were not expectations on the exact language he used when touring or working admissions. Um, so, no one from up top has told me to say a certain thing not um really so i want to give the students that come to tour the most authentic king's tour 
um, with, you know, what we stand for and things. Um, I'm not going to lie and say that, you know, this is our king's housing and this is what you're going to be living in. This is our king's housing and this is what it currently is. Because, you know, I mean, even when this wasn't public knowledge, years in the past, we've always had housing changes. Um, my freshman year, we had an apartment. Um, it was called, we called it West because that's, you know, we shorten everything here. So uh, we called it West and we also had DeVos and we also had Albies. We had three different housing locations. And um, then we decided to consolidate to DeVos and Elby. Um, so things have always, you know, changed and moved around. And um, with saying currently our housing location, it just sheds more light on that things can change. Imagine being in this place yourself. You, the student, are given authority to decide how to address these students about the possibility that what you're selling to them might not be available when they start to get ready for their first year of college. There's no administration to hide behind. You are responsible for bringing in students, and you have to decide what to tell them. As I see it, the truth, and what his job necessitated, seem to be working against each other. To me, Parker's reaction was interesting. Listen to him tell me about how he's feeling about all the ambiguity. Things are very in the ups right now. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't um, we don't know what could be happening in a day or in two weeks or even in three years. You know, um, I hopefully we you know have more clarity in the next week or two. Probably not, but that's okay. Uh, not really, but. Uh, you know you're like arguing with yourself <laughs> I am I feel because... that too in that moment I think I saw the two sides of Parker the one side where he wants to be a quote unquote good student you know do what he's being paid to do bring in students imagine if King somehow survived until the fall what if Parker had given up on admissions there would be no incoming class to keep the college running that would be all on him but the other side of it is that he himself isn't planning on sticking around and that's totally understandable. I mean, even in the very first announcement Stockwell gave all the way back in January, he said that there were no guarantees. This side maybe wants to tell the truth, to say, hey, I'm not even considering being here in the fall myself. I think it would be best for you to find another school, for your own sake. And those two sides of Parker, all in the same body? How are you supposed to cope with that inner conflict? Parker told me he had a solution. People ask me all the time, Whoa, you're still doing that? That's crazy. And when I think about that, I'm like, wow. You know, we are still moving along. But that's when I'm in my personal brain and when I'm in my work brain because I very much separate. Um, I, and it's funny because I even separate it on my computer. Like, I have my personal profile and then my work profile. And so, and the lock screens are different and this and that. And, uh, my, I have all my focuses set on my phone, and so my lock screen is different on my phone when I'm working and things like that. So there's very much of a separation between school, personal, and work life. And when I'm in my work mode, I'm like, this is my job. And, you know, if I get hard questions, like I got asked a few minutes ago, I will answer those, truthfully. I will not hide from that. There's no point in hiding from that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a student, so I definitely understand uh, what these parents and prospective students are thinking, um, and I want to give them, you know, that perspective. Um, but showing the school, showing the school that I love, is what's important to me when I'm working, and that's what I feel when I give tours or when we do in vitro. In my opinion. You shouldn't have to turn off half of yourself to be able to do a job as a student worker. I think Parker had to silence himself, at least part of himself, to actually feel like he could do his job. I don't think that's a responsible administration choice to put that burden upon him. But, and I gotta make sure I tell the whole story here, Parker told me he didn't feel any ambivalence. 
Yeah, is there internal conflict about how much you lead on with the situation for these prospective students? Um, no. Um, no internal conflict. In fact, for Parker, that separation, that compartmentalization, that was actually working. It helped him to do his job and didn't allow for any worry within himself. No, I would say no to uh, internal struggle in that sense. Mm -hmm. Because, again, I'm just a student worker, so I'm doing what I'm told in the sense. Um, like, I'm doing my tours, I'm doing um, what I love to do. And this may be true. If so, Good for you, Parker. I'm trying my best to not misrepresent your situation here. I just know for me, for me, man, I wouldn't be able to do it. And in my opinion, any amount of administration pressure on a student to run admissions departments at this time, whether explicit or implicit, is irresponsible. On the other side of the building, up a few floors and down a hallway or two, is Richard. Remember? He was the guy from episode 2 that originally helped Colby realize that King's financial vulnerability isn't a recent issue, but a deep-seated one. Richard also went through kind of the same circumstances as Parker. He's the coach for a few of the different sports teams at King's, and as a result of that position, he has historically helped out with recruitment. But when Stockwell Day announced the right-sizing cuts to staff in November, that role became one that he reconsidered. I hated the, the announcement to staff for that because I was told we would have half an hour for like a question and answer with Stockwell. Mm -hmm. So immediately I was like, I have a question. Does the speaker yield to a two-part question? <laughs> uh, it was pretty much like, hey, if we're going to limit the number of incoming students, how are you going to judge which students get in and how will that affect athletics recruiting? Because... On, so like my first question is basically like, how are you going to determine which students get in, which don't, if you're limiting? Also, Richard said that you need a specific amount of students to be able to have a sustainable athletics program. And with the class cap, the ratio of athletic student to non-athletic student skyrockets. But he told us that in like each incoming class, the cap is 115. Because throughout the time, uh, like throughout the course of, Students being there will have students transfer out, fail out, for various reasons. So he told us that the incoming class caps was 115. That probably includes like uh, like a designated number for transfer students, designated number for for new freshmen. But he told us the incoming class was 115. Um, and so from there, I was like, hey. This is not sustainable for athletics because if you want us to have competitive teams, when we're making up like 45 or four, like actually like 35% of an incoming class, that's not sustainable. Mm. So like you're either going to force us to, in theory, like bend the knee a bit on lower quality athletes so they at least meet the academic requirement, or you'll then probably complain that student quality is declining academically if we're letting people in based on athletics. So like either way, this is not sustainable because it's like if you if you bend the knee one way, then quality of athletics declines. If you bend the knee the other way, then then faculty will complain that student population quality is declining. Hmm. So it's like I asked him that question and he's like, Yeah, we'll reassess our priorities as we go. I'm like, that's such a fucking politician response. My my internal response to that was like, okay, cool. So athletics is dead. You're just not saying it. I get wanting to wait to say that, but it's like, I'm not going to wait to say that to students. So I, I was like, okay, cool. I'll, pro I'll at least have one more year that I'll probably have one more good year for athletics. And then from there, I'll probably die off. So once again, what are you supposed to do when the program that you are selling to students is, from your view, not long for this world? Richard, just like Parker, realized the severity of the situation. If you choose to stop recruiting for the school entirely, then the school is doomed to die, which I understand that. But in his mind, after a lot of thought, there was just too much doubt of the morality of the situation to continue. 
once you recruit for admissions, once you bring the school or the student to the school, your job is done as a, as a recruiter. Like you did your job, you brought them in. Now it's everyone else's job at the college to then take over. Hmm. As a coach, I'm recruiting and then I'm mentoring and coaching them for, in theory, four years while they're here. My job doesn't stop at the recruiting. My job is to build a relationship with them and to help them in their life. It's like, if I bring them into a shitty situation, knowing it's a shitty situation that's probably going to fail, I have to then see that person every day. And then they're going to blame me for bringing them into a situation. Like, my philosophy when it comes to recruiting has always been this, and that I would love to have you here, but if you think that what is better for you in terms of your long-term goals, your athletic goals, your short-term goals, your academic goals, if you think that is better suited elsewhere, God bless, and I hope you have a, like a great experience, and I hope that that works out for you. We'd love to have you here, but if you think it's better for you elsewhere, do it. My first responsibility is the betterment of the individual, ultimately as a coach. Mm-hmm. Not like It doesn't stop on improving their ability to play a game. It's, like it's more so about improving character, about helping them navigate their life. It's like, it doesn't stop on a court. He has this idea of three implied promises he makes when he recruits a potential student. The first is that if I'm the one recruiting you, I'll at least be coaching you for one year. Which makes sense, because it's like, for the most part, people acknowledge that coaching is a job. Sometimes you'll get another job and move on. So it's like, there's at least one year, because I'm the one who's talking to you right now. With smaller schools, it's a lot more about the mentorship and all of that. So like, you're selling yourself as a coach, effectively. The second one is that if I'm recruiting you, there will be a season next year. And... Yeah, you would think. Like, granted, there's a few exceptions that are usually up front about, like, oh, I'm building this team from scratch, so would you want to help me build a program? We may have hit or miss season in terms of, like, maybe we don't have enough numbers, but we'll try to make a season happen. Will you help me build that program? And, like, we'll do this together type of thing. So, like, you're usually very upfront about that. And then the third implied promise is that if you choose to come here, you can graduate if you choose to stay. I can't make any of those promises. So it's like, why would I keep recruiting if I feel like I'm lying on three fundamental fronts? And that's exactly what he decided to do. He couldn't confidently and with a clear conscience continue to recruit students for what he described as a a broken business model, which is actually a real blow to Kings considering what Richard said next. Just because athletics was more up in the air last year because we're like, well, back then, like, closing wasn't really in the picture as much, but athletics was. Because we're like, hey, this is the direction that the college is going, and we think the school is fine, but if things continue this direction, athletics will probably be cut. So we had already been having that conversation And so back then it made more sense to recruit as hard as we could because in theory, if we bring, we're told if we bring in X number of students, athletics will stay. So we're like, cool, we have a goal. We talked to, he talked to about 350 students during this fall semester. I talked about 400. Admissions used to love us back when we were recruiting because we made their job so easy. We're like, hey, here's all these hot leads. They're interested in the school. They're interested in athletics. And all they had to do was get them to go through the application process, submit transcripts, all their paperwork, and then deposit. So it's like, we got all the interest up front, and they're like, all you have to do is the administrative part. He opted to stop recruiting and let the admissions department handle the student recruitment process. Here we have two different people who decided to take two different routes to clear their conscience. Two different decisions that reflect two different reactions to severe financial uncertainty. What does the college's official refusal to stop recruitment mean? Does it speak more to unintentional consequences of keeping the ship together? Or maybe a management that willfully allows the suffering of some just in case Kings does not die? I mean, you look back at Quest and you see this reaction again contrasted with Kings. When uncertainty is present, do you throw in the towel in the current state, with perhaps plans to regroup and resurge when viability is certain? Or do you push through, doing your best to hold it all together at the price of absolute truth? It's really a decision of what is the goal. Is the goal to by any means necessary survive? Or is the goal to only educate well? It's the question underlining this whole situation. 
one that nags at our most inner parts, asking, prodding us, how far are we willing to tell the truth, even when the truth extends back decades and implicates many more than originally imagined. But that's next time on Demise of the Crown. Demise of the Crown is a production of Empire State Tribune and the Broadway and Exchange podcast. This show was produced and edited by me, Colby McCaskill. And me, Julia Jensen. Thank you to all involved with this project, especially our executive editor, Miriam Orea, and Mindy Huspin, our managing editor. Special thanks to Rob Bruder of Postmillennial Media for this beautifully original score, Matthew Peterson, the regular producer for Broadway and Exchange, and Angelina Espier, our social media coordinator as well as all who under their time and voice to this project.